Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Sean, how are you, brother? Good. Good, thank you. Looking Very good an, to be home. Looking an awful lot better than when we've seen you in them videos. Yeah, I, was, I said to you before, uh, it's about, I was about 65 kilo in those videos. Uh, we had bread and water, so I've put on about 15 kilos since I've been back, which is great. In the last sort of four or five weeks already, most of it I think is water, but, you know, it's just good to be sort of feeling healthy again. And that uh, bread and water was... So you you were held by the what was it like the Dinex People's Republic? Yeah, initially um, after the Battle of Mariupol, Zelensky sort of said, uh, you know, you can surrender, try and get back to enemy lines. Which my platoon opted to try and escape and evade, get back to enemy lines. Uh, about sort of thirteenth of April, we uh, decided that we were going to move and, and go from our position uh to another position about 130 kilometers outside mariopol uh however the, when we went in the early hours of the morning we got compromised there was an ambush waiting and then literally everything just went to tits uh found myself on an e and e uh on my own with uh, some casualties and we got captured about two hours outside mariopol um uh, and then uh, i was taken to a black site where I was just giving bread and water for 50 days, really, on top of everything else. Um, and, uh, you know, literally all the bad stuff happened at that place, really. Uh, I don't know where it was, somewhere in Donetsk, but generally uh, it, it was uh, it was torture. It, you know, if you pardon the pun, it was just a nightmare. Um, the initial part, obviously, getting captured was, I knew from my army training, uh, I was here nine years in Anglia and, and I'd done two for air mobile and been to CS school. So, you know, this course I'd done sort of 30 years ago sort of all came back to me in Mariupol. And uh, literally, so I, I knew the stages that the first initial stage of getting captured was going to be the hardest. Hardest, if I got through that okay, then, uh, then literally uh, it, it, I was hoping it would get a bit easier. Uh, but it didn't, obviously. That's when I had the 50 days of starvation. It was just bread and water. We got bread at about 10 o'clock. Uh, if we were doing something for the day, you didn't eat because if you weren't in the cell when the bread came, that was it. You weren't eating until the next day. So I was already on a calorie deficit in the prison. Uh, and when I didn't get fed, I was down 2,000 calories uh, straight away, sort of 2,500 calories. So I knew I was losing weight. And then on top of that, we had the interrogations and everything else, which just meant, you know, I was always fighting that 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 sort of uh intake of food against what the activity i was doing so i was just starving to death basically uh and i, I still say to people it's the worst than torture sometimes because you're just sitting in a cell all day and you're just thinking about food and where you can get your next food and if you're in an isolation cell you just don't know what's happening what's going on uh, i was quite lucky because i could speak a bit of russian um so when I was met the other guys, eventually, uh, you know, I was a translator and I can I had a better dealing with and a bit of an understanding of what was going on even through when I was captured. So, um, you know, even even when I was captured initially, uh, I knew people on the phone behind me talking to other people that were going to move me on quite quickly to somewhere else. Uh, so I just had to stick stick with it through the beatings and the, the electrocutions and just keep going through that bit till when uh when i was at the black site where it all sort of seemed to start really were you when you were 
taken prisoner, were you worried you were going to be executed then? Yeah, for me, it was the worst time because they were just torturing you for fun. Uh, they were asking you stupid questions. And uh, basically, I was taken to a commander and the first thing they did was stab me in the leg with a knife. Uh, then they cut away all my trousers, trying to look for tattoos, trying to look to see if I was far right, whether I had any Nazi tattoos, or which I don't have any. Um, and then when they weren't happy with that, then they took me to what I, I don't know for definite, but there was very, uh, Spetsnaz looking Russian fatigues, you know, all the good Gucci fast helmets and, and all the good weapon sites and magazines and stuff. So I'm assuming they were like Russian national guard or something I went to. Um, and then, uh, in there, they took me to like a wet room area, which was like tiles. And I thought I'd, I'd, I'd had it here. They were bound me to uh, a chair legs and then, uh, put a hood over me. Um, uh, so, so when I got there, I couldn't see much. And then this guy just put paddles on my fingers and just went, hello, welcome to Russia. And then just started electrocuting me on the, on, on the spot. It seemed like going on forever, but it was so intense. It, it, you know, I couldn't even feel the, 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 my leg problem that was just pouring out with blood. Um, and they put a makeshift like t-shirt on it with some scotch tape to try and sort of uh, put some pressure on it. But they were just electrocuting. There was blood everywhere, and and uh, I couldn't feel it. I was just more worried about the electrocution more than anything else. Um, but they were asking me questions, random questions, which was like, "Where are you from?" and "You're Azov." And you know, they were looking through my profiles online to see if I had any profiles online and things like that. Um, and then a guy came in and put a pistol to my head and pretty much put me down and said, "Now you're going to die." He was just wanting me to scream and stuff, which I didn't do. I thought, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it here. And then he just said, I'm only joking and just pistol whipped me, uh, just clipped me around the back. It wasn't too bad. I just had a little bruise on the back of my head. And then they beat me, tasered me uh, while I was waiting for some transport because they were moving me to Donetsk to another site. But it was, I mean, I've sort of skimmed over it a bit. But I mean, that's the most scared I've ever been because I just thought, uh, you know, these guys weren't asking me anything serious. It was just, uh, I didn't know if anybody knew you know, uh, where I was, I was separated from everybody quite quickly uh, and then taken to the next, put in an isolation cell for about five, six days on my own. Uh, but it's difficult to tell in those isolation cells how many days you're in there because they're built for like disorientation. So you, you're in there, there's no window. You don't know it's down light. We had a buzzer to wake us up in the morning, a buzzer to put us to bed. Um, generally, uh, the food just got slid through, through the door and then, uh, you know, when I first got captured, or I fell asleep in the night, and when I woke up in the morning, food was on the bed. Uh, didn't even hear him come in. Um, mm. It was, it was. I was just absolutely shattered. Uh, but as soon as I got to the Donets, they sewed up my leg, which I thought was a bit strange. Um, they give me medical, injecting me with a painkiller, which made me sleep all night. Um, uh, I mean, I joked about it, sort of saying, uh, you know, I still don't know what they ejected me with, but, you know, I, I'm assumed it was a painkiller or something. I mean, we joked about nanobots and everything in prison, you know, it's like that black humour, you saw that humour you go through to get, get, you, you get through. But, um, yeah, they're literally... Mate, was so, long so, so, so long as it wasn't this fucking COVID jab, you'll be all right. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, they, they actually give us a, a, a what I think is called the Sputnik up the nose uh, before we went into the second prison. So they took us to a hospital where we had this, like their version of COVID jab. Uh, they rammed this thing up our nose and it just hissed and then that was it. Uh, said we were protected from COVID. So again, I don't know what they shoved into me, but 
because uh, they had a hood on in this hospital where they were just took all of us to this hospital and gave us this uh, COVID thing. Um, so, so in between sort of being tortured, interrogated, and beaten, uh, the access to the interrogations became at the black site not too bad. They were just what you would expect, but the access to the cell after the interrogations where where the problems came in because the the guards just the minute they knew you Western, they just absolutely came in the cell, just beat the daylights out of you for no reason. Um, you know, and we we were already underweight because of Mariupol. We'd run out of food and water and ammunition pretty much. Uh, so we, we were literally fighting two weeks on empty to just go straight into that, just killed all the reserves and uh, just started losing weight from the day one. Um you know, I remember just talking to the foreign office because they got us quite being in the foreign office quite quickly. Uh, and they said, how are you? And I said, I'm, I can't hold any weight. And I couldn't tell her. They wouldn't make, they wouldn't let me tell them that we weren't eating. Uh, they just said, you you don't talk about condition. You know, it was like that, literally. Uh, and uh, we we um, we just rang the foreign office and just said, yeah, look, we're eating, but I'm eating one meal a day. Uh, I'm not holding any weight. I got blown up in Mariupol, so I was had real bad contusion and a problem with my ear, and uh, I got flash burns across my face. So I, I was really conscious. I still had like the redness and stuff of uh, of that, um, and uh, I've got to have glasses now because I've just been to the opticians, funny enough. So I've got to have some glasses because I'm a bit sh- sort of short sighted now uh, in one eye. But um, but yeah, literally. Uh, we were sort of saying that, you know, I'm injured and they just didn't care. They just wanted the information, any information you could give them um, in those critical first seven days, which I knew hopefully after that it would get a bit easier. Um, but it was, it's, they moved me uh, from an isolation cell about six, seven days into um, a cell with two Ukrainians in a basement somewhere, which I have no idea uh, where that was. And, and, and it sort of got... A bit easier, but we were just starved for 50 days, uh, which is just the worst, to be honest, because you run out of energy, you're, you're just eating bread, then your diet slows, you, you, your sort of body slows down. It's Everything is built in there to make your stomach uncomfortable. Uh, we didn't have a, a, a bed. There were three of us in the cell that was about three metre by one metre. So when it comes to sleeping, we were like shoulder to shoulder in this, this, this cell. Um, it was dark. It was about minus two, minus three, because it was sort of coming, sort of uh, early April still, and it was coming out of that cold season. So it, it was, it was everything you would expect um, a a uh, prison to be, or, or you know, a prisoner of war camp to be at that start, that period. And we didn't know what was what was going to happen because I'd not met a Westerner. I didn't know he was captured, and I didn't even know there was Ukraine until sort of uh, the NGOs were captured about a month later. Uh, they turned up two about three weeks later. They turned up, so I had no idea if there was Ukraine, whether I was going to see my wife again. Uh, I was in a cell with two Ukrainians who thought exactly the same thing. Didn't really understand uh, why they were there, um, and um, just didn't know if we were going to get home again. So it was one of the most scariest times, in uh, the scariest time of my life, really. Mm. Both men knew their fighting for the Ukrainians was controversial. But both could prove they were professional, contracted soldiers, not mercenaries. Yeah. I married a Ukrainian. I've got every much right to be here. And the guys, it's taken me a long time to integrate here. Uh, so the guys know I'm not, uh, you know, a, a war tourist or a war junkie. And I'm with an organised unit. I'm with the government and I'm with a contracted soldier. 
at what point did you find out that that you were going to be what was it facing a firing squad wasn't it uh well we'd we'd gone through a, a long period of time uh approximately about 50 days in this black site and then even we went to the prosecutor's office and he said you're going to trial next week and we went well that's great um they said and he was on a say look we we've never killed anybody in Donetsk I don't know how it's going to go it could be three it could be six months to trial well it was like one month uh the the, the trial um from from nearly capture so we were going to be moved and the prosecutor said you don't even look like the pictures in your social media accounts anymore he said I think I'll move you to another prison well which I take that as admission we were being badly treated uh and then they moved us to another prison just before the trial uh and that's when i first met really um all the all the people so the ngos uh i met again dylan and, and paul yuri i met uh, uh the swede um you know who was out there uh Mateus. um you know and and then when we was at this prison andy hill turned up at this prison you know we didn't even know who he was he just turned up at this prison from somewhere else and we we all got put in this second prison uh just before the trial which then they started to feed us up a bit give us three meals a day but it was just like cashier which is like porridge consistency it's just uh it's dreadful uh but for me it was like the first meal we had i threw it up everywhere my body just couldn't take it after 50 days of bread so it took a while to to get used to the food again and and water and the water was like different shades of yellow so and they just said to ukraine ukraine had uh restricted the water into donetsk so you're going to get what we get but they were walking around with bottles of water you know <laughs> spring water but um but yeah generally the water was just you couldn't drink it you had to boil it for 10 minutes and it, maybe you'd get all right it's a 50 50 gamble uh, but they were kind enough to give us a boiler to boil boil the water in. Um, but we really had nothing at this new prison. They wouldn't let us have any books. So we just sat looking at the walls. We made a chess set. Uh, but when the trial came round, is when I first met Aiden again, because obviously I knew Aiden before we were captured. Uh, and then he turned up at the, the trial. Uh, and it's the first time sort of really had a chance to talk to him and, and, and see that he was alive, really. Um, uh, and... Uh, he was looking a bit better than we we did um but he he was at another prison so i didn't see him through the whole time but we were we were just telling him about our experience and trying to get this trial trial out the way um and we had a, a they appointed us a, a a lawyer but this lawyer we didn't see she would work for the prosecutor and the mgb which is like the fsb equivalent but in donetsk um so she wasn't any help whatsoever um and we knew it was a sham trial um and from the minute we started the trial to the minute the trial ended was about sort of three days and we'd got the verdict we were we were going to get the death penalty so um and to be honest we weren't shocked really um uh, but i did deep down inside i knew 60 70 percent that we wouldn't be shot uh a new DPR of old, and if they wanted to shoot us, they'd just taken us down the park and shot us. Um, I knew we had some sort of value because quite early on they wanted to stop uh, exchanges for vitamin So mm. I knew it had some sort of value. And one of the Russian soldiers had told us that uh, told me that he'd caught um, with Ukrainians had caught a general and they wanted a general back. So I was pretty hoping 
that you know they would exchange us in exchange for this general that that they were captured who i don't know but he just said yeah you captured our general you're going to stay here till we get him back so i was always uh, assuming the reason they were stitching us up and beating us and then fixing us and uh, trying to get us exchanged i was kind of hopeful that we were going to get exchanged but you just don't know and when the mm. death penalty came in i think we were just like it's 50 50 really don't know what, what what's going to happen uh and then uh we we just had to go back to the the second prison meet the guys and just say yeah we've just been sentenced to death and they were like you know you can imagine it's quite quiet in that um and because the other guys had to go next for their trials so they didn't know if they were going to get sentenced to death too so it was quite a uh a quiet time, a quite, you know, a scary time. Uh, but I was pretty sure still uh, from the calls we were getting uh, that um, they were getting us to ring home that I was still pretty sure that 60, 70% we'd, we'd, we'd get on an exchange. When, I don't know. We were planning to stay till next year. So, you know, we, we literally thought we wouldn't be going anywhere till, uh, you know, till winter finishes and spring comes. So it was absolute shock when they just told us to pack our things. We're going on a journey. Gosh. Um, and Sean, uh, the reason for this severe sentence, because obviously that falls outside the Geneva Convention, is is that because they claimed you were mercenaries as opposed it to... Changed. The, narrative, uh, the narrative changed the whole time we were there. Uh, and what we realised, there were a couple of important people we didn't mess with. Uh, we, we don't know, but we thought they were FSB. They were clearly controlling the situation. Uh, and uh, they seemed to be switched on. Their interrogation techniques were were good. Uh, they would uh, have the same voice for if they offered you a packet of cigarettes or talked to you about a film you must see if you do get home, a Russian film, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, they would talk to you in the same voice and then they would electrocute you on your ear and it would be the same voice. And there wasn't aggression in it. It was the same sort of. Uh, tone uh, which for one guy I called him the voice he was just every time I heard him uh, when I first met him I, I was worried and, and you know thought you know anything can happen actually become quite reliant on him I was quite pleased when he was in places because he wasn't unpredictable if he was pissed off he'd tell you and if he wasn't he'd give you cigarettes Marlboro and stuff so I generally quite preferred him than I did when other people tried to be the FSB agent or the interrogator, really had no idea. And they, a lot of the MGB guys couldn't remember their lies or couldn't remember what they'd said in the previous meeting. And they were just, it was come across as quite cowboyish, you know? Um, but they, you know, there's not much you could really do. It was, uh, you had meetings where you just thought, I, I, I didn't plan on this. You know, when they made us ring all the agencies within the UK uh, to get us uh, known, which, which, you know, I was speaking to the, the DVLA, you know, and I was thinking, why are you getting me to ring the DVLA? You know, and I was speaking, Barbara at Defra was on a coffee break for five minutes. You know, this is a bit beyond me, she was saying. And I'll go, she said, have you tried the foreign office? And I was like, in a minute, I'm going to die if you don't do something. You know, and they were getting me to ring these people up. Um, and I just thought, and they did it to everybody. And I was just thinking, this is a waste of time. Um so, but clearly they, what they did was their technique was to to, to really uh, ask you some questions. You would ask the questions home. Uh, you would contact the media at home and then they would spend two weeks looking at the media for the response and let the British media do all the, the work. Uh, and they would then question you, you know, question you on uh, 
what the media's found out and what your your uh, portrayed what you look like you're portrayed as within the media in the UK. So they were just sort of really um, funneling information back to, to to the UK and just getting the media to do all the dirty work. And then just, you know, like I said, looking at that over the next couple of weeks. And then you'd go back and have another round of questioning, which was uh, strange sometimes, you know. Um, but after the, after we got sentenced to death, we sort of picked ourselves up a bit and, uh, we we decided we were going to fight from inside the prison. Uh, we'd made uh, some some friends, uh, not friends as such, but just you know people we got on with some trustees of the prison, uh, which which was really strange. One of them was a cannibal uh, that had, uh, that was been there for twenty odd years, uh, and, and another one was a, a a meth dealer that had been in five times in seventeen years. Uh, and they were the trustees. <laughs> it's just like, hey, they mate, the guys. There, there's your scran and your bloody drug sorted out. What, what more? What more <laughs> what could you, you want? ask for? Yeah. <laughs> so we literally uh, spoke to them. They got us cigarettes and stuff and helped us where they could. Uh, and we we give them stuff back. And uh, we were talking to political prisoners within the the DPR system. But the Geneva Convention, we were told the narrative changed all the way through. So first of all, we were mercenaries uh, and they wanted to predict this this side of it. After a month and a half, it changed to terrorists. Uh, you went to terrorist training camps and we were then charges were added to our mercenary charge. Um, you know, and then we became sort of mercenary terrorists uh, in a way. On the, And I was just like, if, I've never been in trouble with the law ever. And if you're going to get your first sort of indictment, having two, two the life sentence and two death penalties, it's like we were just joking about that, going, I can't believe it. I've never been in trouble for anything. And then look at this, you know, I'm showing the other guys, I've got a life sentence and two death penalties. So it was very, very unusual. Mm. Um, yeah, but then, then, you know, we were told we were Nazis at the start too. So we became Nazi mercenary terrorists. It was just like, can you keep adding anything on, you know? Hey, go, um, go big or go home. Yeah. I was, I was like, oh, well, hold on. And they knew we had the, the Russian Federation, but we knew had been provided with our contracts. And we'd, myself and Aiden, uh, had been out there, f- you know, for five years. I'd married a Ukrainian. I'd lived in Mariupol. Um, we'd worked as contract soldiers with the U- Ukraine long before February 24th. Sean, originally from Watford, was a section commander. He'd been living in Ukraine for four years. Back then, he couldn't have known how accurate his prediction on this war would be. If they come across the border, we're outgunned. We haven't got air superiority. Uh, superior, superiority. Uh, we don't have a naval fleet, very strong naval fleet. Uh, but Ukrainians fight, so we'll give them a bloody nose, that's for sure. Um, you know, we'd, we'd made lives out there and, um, you know... So, so they just decided to ignore all those facts that were presented to the Russian Federation. And the re- next thing you know, Americans turned up and they weren't even fighting in Donetsk. They were captured and uh, like the NGOs captured uh, in, in Ukraine. So we knew that they were just sending people to Donetsk because it was a grey area that they could then execute them, uh, which then we started to really really worry uh because when they turned out we just thought they're sending all foreigners here because they're not they don't care if they're contracted uh they're just going to send them here and execute them so then we did sort of 
really get a bit more worried about we could this could be the end of it you know so we did fight them in the prison which we, we were successful in getting a um uh, a, a month delay uh on on the 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 next 12 for the next guys uh we'd hatched the plan and said look the media we know the media is going to be there so what you know we're going to talk to them about how we were brutally tortured and how our uh we were under duress when our testimonies were taken and and they did it and uh, it, 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 they got a month and a half delay on their court case and that was it we were then home a month and a half later they never actually got their verdict so the whole thing was just you know surreal it was just it doesn't feel like it's happened really uh six months seems to seven months we were captive and fighting it just seems like we were you know a couple of a couple of weeks if you know what i mean all that condensed down it just doesn't seem like it's really happened um but we're just so glad to be back the first day here i just took my socks off because in prison you don't even get wind so I was trying to describe to my parents, and she said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm just standing out in the in the rain and feeling the wind." It's a, you know we had, we hadn't had time to to sort of it all to sink in. So when we got back to the UK, I just stood outside. I said, "What are you doing?" I was just feeling the wind. I haven't felt the wind for seven months, or seen the sun for the majority of the time. Um, so I said, "It's we've been locked in a cell for 23 hours a day for every day, and it just gets just gets boring." You need we had good guys. Um, who we were with, but even the best guys, you know, sometimes the conversations dry up. You've got to be careful of that because then you get what we called the weight around your neck. So then we had to 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 pick people up because everyone goes through those stages and you have to identify the stages. Then we pick people up who who were, and we were generally really good as a team doing that. Um, like I said, the humour, including the Americans, and uh, was was amazing, um, and that kept us going. Um, we talked about food a lot. When the Queen died, the Russians told us the Queen had died and John Harding just shouted from another cell, God save the King. And then it rippled all the way through the prison, which was quite a, an emotional time. And then, um, you know, things like that you remember forever. Uh, the, 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 um, I was shared a, a cell with the Moroccan, Brahim, who's quite a funny, funny guy, doesn't stop talking. And the guard had to come down and tell us to stop laughing because there's a camera in the prison cell in the, in the, in the dark side. And we were just making jokes for the day and the guard kept coming down and going, stop laughing or I'll stop you make laughing, you know? <laughs> and we would just start giggling. But every time we cracked a joke, we had to turn away from the camera and just start chuckling to ourselves, <laughs> you know? Um, mm. But it's that humour that we found uh, every day in the slightest little thing, like going for a shower. We got beaten all the way to the shower, beaten in the shower. And it was the first shower we had in like two and a half months. And it was a comical thing coming out of the shower because we had hoods on. And they're, they're, all the guards were lined up with three of us, uh, including Brahim. And it, we were shouting, they were shouting left. They wouldn't guide us in through the door. So we were smacking our head on the doors, smacking our head on the walls. They were pushing us down the stairs. And when we got in the cell, I was breathing in the cell, like labouring, going, <laughs> and Brahim's in there going, <laughs> and he just went, I don't want to go for a shower again. <laughs> and uh, it's those humours, and we still talk about it now, the the, the, the shower we never want to go on again, you know. And, <laughs> but when we got back, the bruises all came out and uh, and uh, obviously the cuts and stuff, and uh, you reminisce and, and talk about it. But mm. generally, I was in good fighting spirit. I felt fit and uh, held out quite well within the prison. Mm. Um, I hope the other guys are, are the same. But Mariupol is still dealing with, 
uh, a lot of that because we lost a lot of friends and in, in the fight there to hold Mariupol for as long as we could. So, you know, I'd say 60% of my platoon was injured or killed. We lost all our free BTRs for uh, airstrikes. Um, so we're dealing with that and families have still got POWs over there. Um, and they're contacting me and, and saying, have you seen him? Have you seen it? Uh, my husband? And I'm like, yeah, I saw him in April. He was all right. I know he's a POW and we've had to give some bad news too. So we've had to deal with that since we got back. Sean, let's just go. I just want to tell your story a bit. So you served in the army, did you say? Yeah, I was in Anglian for nine years. Yeah. Is that the Royal so, Anglian Regiment? Yeah, I started in the 3rd Battalion and then uh, they got amalgamated with the 1st Battalion. Uh, so I went there uh, to Colchester and then I went on a joint operations to Bosnia with the 2nd Battalion. Uh, I was part of 24M Mobile, um, so so it was a good time for us then. Uh, and I was also recce with Anglians as well. So I'd done uh, three years in Northern Ireland two Bosnia tours prior to, to going to Ukraine. And also I volunteered in Syria uh, to help the Kurds in 2016. So, I, I, you know, I was pretty genned up with militias and uh, got my medical calls and, and uh, just really uh, enjoyed the life, something different. I'd worked in waste management for sort of 15 years, running my own business and working for other people. And I just got sick of the same old, same old. And... Uh, when I found myself, my son's all grown up and put him through uni and I've, I've found myself single. I just wanted to do something different. I didn't want to sit behind a desk all the time. So I had friends doing this, kept in contact with people, went to Syria, enjoyed that. Um, and then that led me on to Ukraine about a year and a half later. So mm. Didn't that get you in trouble, though, the fact that you'd had previous uh, military experience out, outside of the British military, I mean, like, like in Syria and this sort of stuff. Yeah, Syria was a, a, a bit of a, I never got arrested when I come back. It was a bit of a, a grey area. Uh, I, I was, I, I really uh, enjoyed my time meeting, but I went with a medical team, out, uh, the, the tactical medical unit out there. So I, I wasn't really fighting essentially on the front line. I was a medic. Um, generally, it got me a lot of uh, problems when I got back, but no major ones. I wasn't arrested. I just assisted the police in inquiries and stuff when I came back. And uh, they were happy with that. Um, I'd kept in contact with a consulate while I was over there saying I'm coming back. And, you know, I was kind of trying to be transparent as I could. Um, and I, and I, I met some, you know, amazing people over there, Kurds, and, and, and loved every minute of it. Um, but then when I, I came back, I tried to get another job doing waste management and and uh, commercially it was just uh, I was just bored again I, I thought we're going back to you know I want to do something good um so initially mm. I went to see some friends in Ukraine I didn't go over there to fight I didn't really understand fully the Ukrainian or not like I do now uh so I went to Kiev and then somebody gave me uh, and uh, offered me an possibly an instructor's role with National Guard um so i went over there to see what that was all about and they had a lovely house on the beach the base was on the beach in mariupol and uh the sun was out and it was beautiful summer they run us through a selection process 12 of us um so i thought oh I, you know hopefully i had it in me to do it still uh and then three of us got selected so uh, i was part of um uh, national guard 
And then I'd worked with uh, Azul for two years, uh, which is totally different to what it was in 2014. They'd been brought under the, into the military. And uh, that was only my only concern working with them. And then I met my wife in Mariupol. So um, that was, sorry, the dog's kicking off. Um, that was, uh, met my wife in Mariupol. Um, and then I stayed. Uh, I really loved it. But I knew uh, working with Azov, the, the stigma of that hadn't changed. Um, even though, you know, there wasn't, uh, I'm not a Nazi, they're, 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 I'm not going to tell you they're not there. Uh, I had a debate with someone sort of saying, no, it's, it's been brought into the military, uh, the Ministry of Defence run it. It's a very good tactical unit. It's got more money spent on it. Um, and generally the guys there are uh, patriots of Ukraine. Um, and uh, and the training is much better. And if you're a soldier, um, you really want to train with the best people. You want the people you train with to know that they're not going to run. The Ukrainian military is very hit and miss. My unit in the Marines was very good. Uh, they didn't have alcohol pro alcohol problems. They fundamentally had a training system, a training training plan. Um, but I knew it was a better move for me to go back, go to the Marines and and work towards my residency and citizenship. But away from that, um, away from those guys, uh, mm -hmm. because the the press and what they uh, relay back to the world about what Azov is isn't what Azov actually is. I remember reading an article in the. Um, a paper saying there were thousands of of uh, British and Europeans that were going into Azov, this far right group. We were just looking around, and there was like three instructors, and that's it. You know, the rest of them were Ukrainian, and we were going, "Well, who's writing this junk?" You know, mm. um, and for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, you fight with people who, who who are fighters, and yeah, there are some guys in there that have uh, those beliefs, but as long as they don't break the law, and you know, we're we're all above board, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So you fight with the guys and it's their country. Um, so I'd never had a problem working with them and they were thoroughly professional, um, a lot more professional than the other units. And uh, and that led me to go onto the Marines really, uh, which then they wanted me to do their Air Assault Brigade, which is uh, Air Assault Company within the battalion. A battalion historically was from Crimea. Um, so it's a very nostalgic battalion, the first battalion. Uh, so at 40, 47, I think, I was jumping out of planes uh, and, and helicopters. They put me on a parachute course. I was the first Westerner to to pass the, the parachute course, all aspects of it, including night jumps, combat jumps. And then uh, I was the first Westerner to, to jump as a Ukrainian soldier, um, along with Aiden. Uh, so we, we did all that, and their patience was amazing because if trying to teach you to pack a parachute in, in someone's teaching you in Ukrainian is, is, mm. is very hard, but you, your language comes on. So um, so they had a lot of patience with us, and uh, it was one of the best things I ever did. We did fast road joint exercises with the Americans, the, the Canadians, the, the Swedish. Uh, so, and then I was first, I think, for probably first Western ever to uh, be a BTR commander. So I was like... It was just surreal. I loved every minute of it and, and loved the, the army. You know, I always loved the army. Uh, so to go back and do something like all those things again was just, for me, amazing and getting paid for it and then having a wife. And it's one of the highest paid jobs in, in Ukraine at that time. If you worked on the front and did all that, it's, it's my biggest employer. Um, so I felt if you were going to get a citizenship, you give something, you get something in return. So that was the deal we had with the Ukraine government when we signed a three-year contract uh, extension. So 
for me, it was uh, amazing. And then obviously the war hit. We lost our house and, and uh, everything in Mariupol. My wife had to move into central Kiev. Uh, and that's where we ended up fighting for Mariupol. Um, and that, that's just basically my background, really. Is it a thing then? So, like when I joined the forces, and uh, as you well know, Sean, the thing was Northern Ireland. That was where you went yeah. and cut your teeth and whatever the expression should be is it the thing then in ukraine that you've got this issue in the east is that what all the the you know the training and the fighting is gears towards that you've got these uh, russian separatists supported by russia it, it's a very it, it, i think a lot of people in this country sean don't understand the complexity of it all they just yeah, think that Ru they think yeah. that Russia has invaded another country for no reason whatsoever other than greed. They don't know the significance that a third of that country is actually what would we say Russian speaking? More, more yeah, for instance. So, so my wife's a predominantly a Russian speaker. Uh, we live in Mariupol, and Mariupol generally speak uh, Russian as as a first language. Would be fair to say. However. Uh, majority of Mariupol people identify themselves as being Ukrainian. Uh, there are sympathizers in Mariupol that obviously believe that Russia, uh, they should have Russian, more Russian ties. However, generally, the, the people in Ukraine are, are lead towards the uh, West, but they speak Russian and, and they identify as being Ukrainian. And this is where your your problem is, uh, you know, with, with that region. Um, so so myself included learn russian not ukraine my ukraine is very bad but um you know generally because of where i lived i learned russian and sujik which is a mixture of both um and um this is the problem you have within that area you've got also a power vacuum in that area there that, that basically that what seems to be warlords coming in and uh, you know, gangs coming in and where it all started were funded by Russia because Russia wants that area. That area is quite rich in industry still. Uh, it's some of the most um, fertile farmland probably in Europe. Uh, so there's a lot of money and he also wants the Azov coast. So he's been funding a war since 2014 uh, and an uprising basically in that region because he wants the uh, former Soviet Union back. And he wants that link between Mariupol to Odessa around the Azov Sea. So this is where your likes of, you know, the Azov formed basis to stop that from happening, which was successful in taking back Mariupol from the separatists and holding that region. Um, so whatever you, anybody's thoughts on that, that's what they've done, basically. Mm. Um, and then you've got the rest of uh, Lugansk and Donetsk, which uh, they're trying to hold those areas. Uh, predominantly Russian speaking, but what they're really good at, the Russians are, is is evacuating all the Ukrainians. Uh, the Ukrainians evacuated Mariupol and then taking busloads of Russians into to Mariupol uh, and resettling Russians back into that area. So then you've got the referendums coming into play. Then they're making everybody vote Russian. Of course, there's no Ukrainian resistance in those areas or anybody that can vote for, for uh, a no vote. And if you vote a no vote, <laughs> you're taking a three-year jail sentence probably straight away because we were in prison. You know, anybody that showed any patriotic uh, tendencies towards Ukraine generally got a three-year 
suspended sentence or a three-year sentence, you know. Uh, and one of the guys, DPR guys in the prison said, there is no platform for them to elect anybody. You know, this guy, the mayor, is there. And if you criticise him online, you're then put in prison and taken to, you know, there for three years. So generally, there's no democracy in those areas. It's a false democracy. Um, and then I referred it to the Bosnia in the 90s. Uh, I said to a journalist over there, a Russian journalist, I said, it's, you know, the Americans have a great saying. It's uh, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. Is it identical to the ethnic cleansing that was going on in Bosnia, ethnic cleansing of Ukrainians in Ukraine by Russia? It, it's pretty much like that. Um, and, you know, for all intents and purposes, they called it Nazi cleansing, but it is, that's how it's described. When I said it's ethnic cleansing. You know, I've seen this in the 90s. It's exactly the same. And they are. They're stealing the properties. They're stealing the houses. When I was, uh, I did a media broadcast to Channel 4, I think, which got me uh, a lot of uh, sort of viral. Uh, they just bombed the school. They carpet bombed everything with grad. Um, they didn't care if you were a Russian sympathizer when they came in or a Ukrainian. They just carpet bombed everything, just wanted Mariupol uh, to take their back. So now I find it quite hypocritical watching them saying they really care for the people in Kherson and really care for the Russians in Mariupol. They didn't when I was there because they just bombed everything, um, you know, whether you were Russian or Ukrainian. Uh, so it's very difficult area. The whole region is a very difficult area. But Russia, make no mistake, they really do want it for the geography and the Azov Sea, really, and the the, the importance of uh, uh, the money uh, aspect of it with with the you know the minerals, farmland, and steel that they can the factories that they can get working, get get moving on. Mm. Sean, why did the um, the Mink Minsk Accords? Why why were they not? stuck to what it, it, uh, it, 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 i'm just going to say from the outside perspective it looks like zelensky and what we would call his controllers are obviously not interested in they're not interested in that that's peace that don't make money yeah yeah um, so can they be resurrected or is, uh, i mean for, for me i think there has to be my personal view there has to be a change in leadership for any peace deal I mean, the way I described it to someone recent was they were sort of saying, well, Ukraine's not entertaining peace. And I said, OK, so if Scotland took all of northern England and Liverpool to Yorkshire, Leeds all got taken by Scotland, would you then negotiate a peace deal while they're still holding those areas? Of course you would. Mm. And of course, now Ukraine's actually held and held and held. And now they're actually taking ground. Why would anybody uh, want to... Uh, talk peace when I think somebody else used the words it's like uh, a wolf chewing at your leg why would we want to talk peace while that's mm -hmm. going on um, you know so so they want these areas back Kherson is very close to my base in Mikolaya so I know Kherson and families of the soldiers that fought in Mariupol some of them live in Kherson uh, occupied territory so while dealing with that they've had to deal with that uh, that their families are now in Russia so I saw some very brave men still working in Mariupol, knowing that their families are, are in occupied Russia and they wouldn't know when they would see them again. So, you know, they want to take these areas back um, and they're getting help from the West quite rightly because Russia won't stop with Ukraine. If Russia gets into Ukraine and beats Ukraine and takes Kiev, they're going to be linking up with Transnistria. next stop's Moldova. Uh, they're already pushing into Georgia uh, 
you know, are moving the boundaries in Georgia. And Georgia's got its own problems with Russia. So, you know, they're constantly trying to move west. Um, you know, and my experience in Ukraine is one, it's it's not a Nazi country. It's a beautiful country you can go on holiday. Um, amazing scenery, very much like England uh, in some aspects. It'd be a beautiful summer climate. It's nothing like spring and summer in, in Ukraine. Um, but now, obviously, with the war, it's very difficult to, to go. Kiev's one of the most beautiful cities, you know, mm. you, you could ever go to. Um, and it's just changed all aspects of uh, of Ukraine. So quite rightly, it, it, you know, we've got to stop Russia, and I still believe we've got to stop Russia from uh, taking any, making any further gains in, in Ukraine at all costs, because it just won't stop. They'll just move into Europe. Do you really believe that, Sean? I, I mean, I'll hold my hand up and... I'll you know i don't know everything of course i don't don't pretend to i just wish we could all have peace because i've you know yeah i've 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 lived worked and traveled now all around i've seen more of the world than i think anyone ever has (laughs) anyone that i know put it that way and all i just meet is lovely gorgeous people the you you know i've had the the odd run-in with people but i just messaging my mate there this morning um vadim we explored Antarctica together, you know, and, mm. and and I've just messaged him to say, have you been like mobilized just because, because, you know, he'll just tell me straight and he'll tell me. And so, and I think the thing that uh, tweaks people's concern is when you look at um, Zelensky and I'll just say it and I don't judge anyone and I don't hold nothing against no one, Sean, but he's a fucking jumped up prick, right? And he's he's been brought to power by uh, Kolomoisky, who's what we call global mafia. You know, the, these are the these are the boys that that they've got their little club. We ain't in it. You ain't never going to be in it. I yeah. ain't ne- I ain't never going to be in it. The public are just going to suffer more atrocities for years and years and years to come. And um, it's. <sighs> You know, it's all just so not clear cut. But but one thing we do know is blessed are the peacemakers. And it's just that simple. Yeah. And these fuckers, they don't give a shit about that because they're all sociopaths anyway. They don't they can't experience love, Sean. You know, they all to them. It's just money and power, just money, yeah. money and power. And I don't want my kids to be subjected to a whole lifetime of war that I have been and you have been right. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing tanks on the news and I was a kid in, in like some Iran war or some Pakistan and, and the people used to sit on the tanks cause they were too shit to like fire weapons and, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and then the whole Northern Ireland thing. And then the 20 years of illegal conflict in, in the middle East, all, all based off, what some people would argue were false flag events. And, 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 you know, if I just thought it was a case of poor weapons into Ukraine, we'll, that'll sort it. I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd be the first to put my hand up and I'll be the first to go over there. But I, um, you know, Kolomoisky, <laughs> third, third richest man in Ukraine, wanted yeah. for, wanted for, uh, let's just say crimes. He's, and, and, if the if we're not careful, that beautiful country that you described, I have no doubt it's beautiful. 
there's a few quirky things like the tying people to lampposts. Perhaps we'll we'll come on to talk about that. But you know, people are beautiful and country is beautiful, right? But if we're not careful, that country is just gonna use be used as a proxy site for all the, the arms companies in the world to offload all their shit, all their old stock, right? Most of which will go on a black market. It won't actually go to the front line, as I'm sure you 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 know you must have experienced yourself. Um, the people are going to suffer. It's just going to get, get smashed to hell. And, um, uh, what am I saying it? You know, the, 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 the resolution will all come too too late. You know, it will all come too late. And there's not also Sean, we got to remember that they're playing a game here. You know, this pushing with NATO, was it now Sweden and Finland are going to join? It's like, yeah. what? The two most peaceful countries. And I, I've got a medal from Finland, believe it or not. Not not for scrapping, but for humanitar- <laughs> yeah. humanitarian work that I've done. Um, and I've lived in, uh, in in and out of Sweden on and off for, for several, several years, you know. And and um, I'm only mentioning this because there'll be people watching now like, Chris, why didn't you say this? Why didn't you? I'm like, yeah, guys, yeah, I've yeah. said it now. I've said it. All right. But this is at, this is Sean's story, you know, so yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not I'm not going to like force a, 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 any, but just more interested, Sean, to see like what you've been f- through and 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 it is awful you know it is awful at some point in life we're all gonna have to get along yeah absolutely you know? look I, i'm the first one to say i don't hate russians they asked me i said i don't hate russians i hate for russian foreign policy and uh by extension of that is is the soldiers that are in in ukraine that are obviously uh russia's arm basically um going back to your first point the minsk agreement uh I was kind of hoping out that would hold uh, up until the very days, late days in, in February, up till 24th of February. I was kind of hoping there was going to be some sort of resolve in that. Uh, however, obviously, Putin must have had these other ideas for a long time prior to what he was saying to the media about the Minsk agreement and his commitment to it, because already he, he was planning, uh, you know, months and months before uh We'd always, we'd always had over the last five years, 80,000, 90,000 people uh, from Russia on the border uh, in the, you know, army personnel. personnel. Mm. So we'd live with that for five years. And every year they said the Russians are coming in and every year we go, that ain't going to happen, you know? Uh, but I used to say to him, you can't leave that size army on the border without something happening at some point. Uh, you know, that size army is inevitably, the longer it sits there, the longer it's going to have more problems. So I knew even up to a few days before February 24th, uh, I was talking to my wife and even she said, I don't think it's going to happen. We're brothers. Uh, we always talk like this, but it, it's never going to happen. Um, you know, and the general feeling was it, it wasn't going to happen. It's just more rhetoric. Uh, mm. So when it did happen, I, you know, I couldn't have been any further on the front line. I was in a forward observation post further than the front line, uh, just listening out to see and looking to see what see what was happening. And, uh, you know, when we had to extract back to Mariupol, the realism of that was 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 just phenomenal. It's miserable. You know, war is miserable. And I tell everybody and anybody, you know, I've had calls with people saying, I want to do what you do. I want to go over there. And I try my best to go, don't do it. If you can't speak the language, if you can't understand the geopolitics of it all, 
if you've got nothing to offer them and don't go to a war based on morality, oh, they're having a hard time. I want to do something, so I want to shoot. Don't go to it. So those are my four points. I give everybody that texts me, that just don't go. And I said, if you want to go in the winter, you have no idea what it's like in fighting in minus 30. And you you can't just go and leave. You're there in the middle of it. You're in the middle of it and you could get surrendered. You could get captured like me. You've got to be committed, a believer uh, to do it. And if you lose a reason why you go to that, that place in the first place, I've seen Ukrainians go nuts and, and go do Lally because they lose the belief in why they're fighting in the first place. So for a Westerner to go over there and want to do that, they seriously have to believe in what they're doing uh, to go over and fight for Ukraine. By extension of that, um, yeah, I totally understand where you're going through. I wasn't particularly a Zelensky fan when he took over. Uh, my opinion was he got voted in on no policies. He just got voted in on a show. Uh, however, he is going to the front lines. Where do you see Putin? He's going to the front lines, Zelensky. He's in his fleece. He's walking out there. He's the face of Ukraine. He's winning the social media side of it, um, by, by all accounts, whereas Putin's hiding in a bunker in his suit going through generals like toilet roll. Uh, you know, it, they've not got a, a grasp of this war. Uh, it's the, This whole war has made Russia look financially weak. It's made them look military weak. And they, they clearly have, their plan was to take Ukraine within sort of three to seven days uh, to attack Kiev, take the flank. It hasn't worked. And like I said to you before, I didn't even think the speed they were going through, I didn't even think there was going to be a Ukraine. So what it was made clear to me when I was captured was uh, by the Russians and the DPR guys was was that the territory of Ukraine, it belongs to Russia. It's Russian, which for me was very hard to, to take. It's not. It's a sovereign country. Countries move on. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and they said, when we finish with uh, Ukraine, we will go to Poland and take Poland. And, and I, I just sat there absolutely gobsmacked. And you can have the other Westerners on the show tell you exactly the same conversations we had with their But mentality. these, um, sorry, Sean, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying, but we all know, you know, these are just people that have listened to their mainstream media, that in the Russia it's propaganda. Over here it's been, you know, mm. it, it, I listen to, I mean, I'm on a few uh, Russian Telegram channels, so I, I and, and Chechen ones. And it, it, some of it's laughable. Uh, the Chechen ones that it, they've got this like use of language that is is it's like you'd have when you were about twenty two. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's almost they haven't quite called people gay yet, but it's it's yeah. it's, it's bordering on that sort of childlike. Um, you know, they, they refer to everyone as the Nazis or the Bandera and Absolutely, the, yeah, and, yeah. and the, the shaitans and, and it's I get sick of it to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, it's all it's it's but but that, that this is um, my channel members will know what I'm talking about now. This is the difference between enlightened people, folks, and unenlightened, you know. They're bought into the matrix, they're bought into the the war, the peace, the 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 taking sides, and it's all about you know, not owning your own 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 mind and this is what the global controllers are re really yeah. really good at and putin works for the global controllers the same as zelensky in fact zelensky doesn't he, he he's he's just a puppet at the end of a string it's kolomoisky that, yeah. that 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 you know they're all in a big club uh and we ain't in it 
<laughs> yeah, but, obviously. Yeah. Um, Sean, I, um, I, I really, uh, I, I'm loving your story, mate, and I love your honesty. Uh, it's, 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 it's refreshing. I, I got a few things that I just want to get through. Um, uh, Liz Truss, have you spoken to her? Uh, I understand she wrote to my parents uh, when I was captivity. We had a lot of thanks for Liz Truss uh, for for helping us, uh, you know, assisting with us. When she became mm. PM, we actually talked about it in prison. Um, we were like, well, we had I had no idea what a, a, a politics and a reputation was like. But obviously, being a working with the Foreign Office, uh, we were really happy that somebody was now PM who knew we were already. She didn't have to chase it. She knew all about us, so we were quite happy about it being. PM, um, but she, yeah, she wrote to my mum. She, she, we got a lot of thanks for her and the foreign office because the foreign office she, she was running was really, really good. Um, you know, they helped us when we got to Saudi. They gave us clothes. They told us not to worry. When we rang them, there were dialogue, giving us information on the phone. They were, you know, the crisis team was amazing. Um, you know, even to the point where we, when we came home, uh, they wanted to help with my wife's visa and stuff to get her back here and. You know they've been really amazing uh, for, for, and they're sort of. Uh, are are they, Sean? Are they that way? You, you were a fighter. I mean, you you were a serviceman, right? Yeah. Serv service person. Or do they treat the mercenaries with the same? You know? I don't know. I can't speak on that. All I I, I was uh, very made clear. I was a contract soldier from the start. Um, just doing a job I really loved to do. Um, and my, my social media will show you that I, I love to do it. You know, I was cooking, jumping out of planes. Who wouldn't like that? I got another stab at a job I really loved at, at 48. I was fit, fit as I've ever been, you know. And uh, for me, it's one of the, you know, we used to joke about it all the time. In, and the hardest time is when Mariupol, my boss would still go, he spoke really good English. And he goes, Sean, best job in the world. <laughs> I go, yeah, best job in the world. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, we joked about it. and uh, But it is, for me, it was a major job I did from when I left school at 16, 17. So, you know, I don't know if they treated them any differently. Uh, I know for a fact, like I, said, I touched on bef before, that as of, it's not the same as of as it's portrayed in the media. Uh, generally, those guys, if you're a Western that works with them, you're not on a contract. So as far as I know, the two people that were with, working with them uh, were generally uh, treated the same way. Uh, but I don't know... Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't really know, to be honest. The, the uh, You know, the Legion is still uh, a Legion formed. I don't know too much about it. It was formed when I was obviously a captive. So I don't particularly know too much about Legion. I've not come into many contact with people in the Ukrainian Legion. So mm. uh, I don't really know too much about it. Uh, but the, the Marines and, and stuff, you know, I can talk a great bunch of lads. And um, yeah, we were treated very well uh, by the Ukrainians. Uh, but the Russians, not so well. Sorry. <laughs> the whole Nazi thing is uh, like most people don't know their history because they, you know, they watch like a Steven Spielberg film and they think that that's history. And it, and it, it gets, folks, it gets complicated. You can actually be a Nazi and be a really good person. But yeah. unless, you, unless you've done your reading and you understand what na what what national socialist means, um uh you're you're you've got this i don't know i think people have this vision of like these stormtroopers <laughs> yeah, yeah, they just want to kill every 
and um i've said this all along and i don't like i say i don't take sides but you know it, it, it people get confused between nationalism and 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 um find me a soldier that isn't a nationalist yeah anyway. well well there you go and and also the the history of that country is so in entwined with with russia and with germany and um just through the the second world war it was exactly. a very still stuck there in a way yeah, yeah incredibly complicated um what about so i know through my own uh can we say intel that british forces have been operating there for a long time that's all i'm going to say folks right i'm not i'm never going to put any of my you know any I, i'm never going to put lives at risk um did you have experience of that no i was on the front line with ukraine um like i said to you i was in a forward observation point uh you would have never seen any brits there anyway uh no. I, I was as far forward as you can get on the first day of the war um you know i'm quite lucky i survived because a lot of people didn't so you wouldn't get anybody that close anyway but never I, saw anybody and we were surrounded so I, I never saw any and i never see them over there in five years so i just wondered if you heard um let's just say for example weapons coming across the border this sort of stuff no obviously the uh the law and laws came in uh it took a while to trickle down and my opinion didn't get there quick enough uh 30 years ago i'd fired a law 90 94 uh suddenly i became an expert within my platoon with the new end law that i'd never even seen before and i've just gone full circle 35 years later now as an anti-tank instructor you know? uh and that was like two three days before the invasion so for me they came a bit late but apart from seeing uh not seeing not seeing the uh anything else really uh for, from that aspect of it so these billions of tons of ordnance that have been poured in by countries like the UK I think um Poland is one of, is one of the biggest ones next to next to USA mm. um it, th there's a few things going on here isn't there so first of all what a, what a country declares it's giving in I'm just going to use quote unquote aid <laughs> whether that's mm. you know they what do they call this there's a name for it they come up with this stupid fucking name it's like it's packages like they? pot like like negative aid or so it, it just means like weapons basically but what a country declares it's given and what they actually end up giving is usually two very different figures yeah having said that We've seen from the 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 hymnals and this kind of thing that that equipment is arms and equipment is reaching Ukraine. Would you say, from your experience, is that reaching the front line, or do you think that's going to, you know, I mean, the Americans are talking about like it's something stupid, like like billions upon billions of dollars, mm. and I'm just wondering if you saw that equipment or. <laughs> Because if no, you... unfortunately, no, because this all this came about after the Battle of Mariupol, the majority of it. Um, mm. So I, I can't really sort of comment on that, uh, only from what I've seen in the media, which for me, I don't trust mm. the media anyway until I get at least, you know, two or three sources from on the ground. Um, but generally, I, I do believe it's it, it's getting there. Uh, but I really, have, you know, I, I've not been back to Ukraine. So literally, I was fighting in Mariupol, captured release sent to saudi and then come from saudi to england so i haven't seen anything aspects of the war uh, at all only from the media uh, and my experience there is 
having just sat through six months of Russian media about the war and then coming back to this side and seeing the media here about the war. Obviously, I heard the radio broadcast and everything in Russia. They just, you know, their their media is quite filtered. Um, you know, so if there's any negative information on the radio when I was in Russia, generally we thought it would be 10 times worse than they're reporting because they just report little problems. So that means it has to be a really big problem over there to even put it on the radio. Um, and, and, you know, from working out there uh, and places like that, um, you know, you you can see uh, the best information is from guys on the ground. Uh, and I haven't really, I've just taken three, four weeks off. Uh, I really just spent it with family uh, who I never thought to see again in my wife. So I haven't really sort of caught up with any of that. It's nothing I could sort of really comment on at the moment. What, um, Sean, can you explain the geography of the As As of Stole Steel plant with respect mm. to where you were? I was in Idachar, uh, north uh, of Mariupol. So uh, the steelworks runs in little mills all the way across Mariupol. Uh, we set up a perimeter around Mariupol, and I was in Ilichar, which is the northern north part of the steelworks. And how far from how far from say the centre of Mariupol is the steelworks? Like uh, in, in kilometres or miles? Well, you've got. Um, it's difficult to sort of say. We were we were about three or four kilometres from the the centre, really, not very far. Uh, we were guarding one of the main MSRs into into Mariupol. Uh, it never materialised, but we were expecting uh, tanks and BTRs come rolling through where we were. Uh, however, we just got bombed by artillery uh, for a lot of time and airstrikes. So generally. Um, we sat there as sitting ducks, really, for five weeks. We had recon trying to break through the lines a couple of times. Um, but generally, they, they were targeting other areas uh, from the from the east side rather than Mariupol. So they came in through the left bank and uh, that side, we could hear it all going on behind us. And I lit, my house is on the left bank, so I just had to sit and watch that area just get totally annihilated uh, and my house blown up. So... You know, we were hearing that. We knew we were surrendered, so it, you know, you know, we we knew we'd have to either surrender or or fight our way out um, quite early doors. So, we're trying to get motivated to get up every day and and do that is is hard work because mm-hmm. fighting about was one thing, but when you know you've got no insight, no win, really, uh, it's very hard to get up every time it's your duty or your stag and and get people motivated to get them to fight. But a lot of people stayed, didn't they, in that in that plant and fought it out? Well, get, yeah, I guess not, they pro- probably weren't doing too much fighting, but... No, the, with it, I, I believe that there were two sorts. Uh, they give the opportunity for people to surrender, um, which I didn't, or you could break out. We broke out. Uh, I believe a load of people stayed to surrender and negotiated deals with the DPR to surrender in Illichur. Mm. Uh, I know the Azov, the Azov style plant... Uh, which had had the uh, Azov guys in underground, they they stayed on for another three weeks underground in an underground bul- bunker before they they surrendered. Um, for me, the war it was over. You know, we we'd already run out of water and food. Uh, we didn't have any of that that they had in those bunkers anyway. Um, so we'd already been depleted. It was just, and we'd had uh, uh, a battalion that had uh, surrendered because they just run out of ammo and run out of people. Um, you know, it was that sort of war. Um, 
so there's there's conflicting stories that come out about uh you know as of style but but generally that's the way my unit my, my unit wanted to break out and we tried to break out so that's the way we went with it mm. sean did you see a lot of death yeah absolutely you couldn't get away from it um you know, even when we first got to Mario, we were lucky that when we was in Pavlopol, where we were deployed in December before the February, um, we'd we'd actually extracted and got out of there with no casualties, but we'd heard casualties and, and deaths on the radio. But my platoon actually got out of there without even a scrape, um, which was great. Uh, I don't know how we did it. It was just grad and on mortars. And, you know, I'd had uh, 762 coming in through the slit on my trench. Um there were SBG rockets just hitting the the trench line above. Uh, I could hear firefights to the left where they uh, got overrun and prisoners had been taken on the first day, uh, Ukrainian prisoners. Um, so we were just, the shit had hit the fan and we were right in it. Um, and when we got the code word to get out, we just had to bug out of our position and leave loads of shit everywhere uh, and go to the BTRs to get out and get a respite and a break from the fight we'd just done for two days trying to hold these uh, DPR or Russians off. Uh, but we were just the air superiority was just too much, you know. They they had the air all all the way through to Mariupol and all the way through the siege of Mariupol. So this was just way too much. Mm. They had uh, surface to air igloos that just weren't hitting targets, you know. They were fifty fifty if it had hit. Uh, saw a lot of rockets go up for these planes, but just not hit. But I was on duty when one got hit. It was crazy, you know. To see it spin down this plane, to spin down into the Azov Sea, like. Um, so. But we must have seen 40 rockets go up before that and didn't hit shit. Uh, so, we, you know, could have done with man pads and, and good surface-to-air missiles, stingers, anything that would have been better than what we we had there. But, um, yeah, we, we Mariupol was just a different story. Uh, as soon as we got dug in in Mariupol, we had a wrecking patrol come and take out two of my friends um, on sentry. Uh, managed to repel that, uh, but unfortunately one of them died. We had two guys in my platoon who were scavenging for food. Uh, got one got direct hit uh, with a tank. Uh, couldn't even find a body for him. Um, another guy got two broken legs. Then we had my friend uh, who was on my Facebook who plays the piano. Quite a, a sad story. Uh, on the extraction back, just found a piano at school, started playing classical music. And uh, unfortunately, he died in his BTR in Mariupol. Um, so, so, you know, it's quite a sad Facebook story that, that I've got on my posts. Mm. Um, and he spoke three languages and a lovely lad with all of it, you know, the world at his feet. And, um, and, uh, unfortunately, yeah, the, the, it's just the nature of the job. Uh, we had reinforcements come in uh, who weren't trained very well, didn't know much. So sort of for, for 48 years old, I found myself a PKM gunner with extra link, uh, GP uh, and grenade launcher, and because these guys didn't know how to use them, uh, so I was like Rambo at one point, carrying all this extra link PKM, AK, grenade launcher, spare vogs to go in the grenade uh, launcher, because uh, the reinforcements was undertrained, uh, so they didn't know how to use all this stuff. Um, so you know, and that we just ran out of people every day. We didn't know if you were going to come back and. Because we tried to take cover in the sewerage works underground uh, from the artillery and the mortar strikes. We tried to rotate people through uh, so you could hear all the airstrikes and all of it coming in at night. And then you'd go out and it'd be like two people less than there were when they took over from, you know. And that's just unfortunately the area we were in. Uh, when we were coming out, there were just 
trying to extract out. We got bumps. There was Ukrainians in the streets, uh, dead. Uh, and there's nothing you could do. There was some laid on stretches where they tried to take him out, but there was just too much mortars and artillery. And the stretchers were just left with the bodies on. It was just horrendous. Um, so, but that's the nature of war. You've got to keep pushing people, especially if you're a commander. You can't, you can't let think about that. You just got to keep pushing people because you're responsible for their lives. My PC was amazing. Um, he was, uh, last words I spoke to him were, you know, how are we going to get out of this shit? And he went, I don't really know. Uh, he said, but we're going to move. Uh, and uh, he said, all I want to do is just see my wife again. I said, but where are we going to go? And he went, Anywhere's better than here, <laughs> you know. And uh, all the way through, he dug out uh, positions, hot wider JCB, um, nicked the JCB to dig out positions out for us, which saved a lot of lives. Um, you know, one time I woke up, he was putting a blanket on me because it was just we'd caught five minutes. You know, that's the sort of PC you want. Uh, good role model, you know. Um, he was a really good guy. Um, spoke really good English. So yeah, I mean, we live with it every day. Even he got hit by shrapnel. Um, so, and he carried on, uh, that's the way it was. More people were getting hit by shrapnel, uh, than, than the sort of die, but yeah, we were surrounded by it all the time. Sean, what about manpower or person power? We should say, I mean, um, Ukraine is significantly smaller than Russia, obviously population wise as, as well. How, how long can they keep going? I mean, who, who, who's manning their front lines now? Because what we hear here, if certainly if you if you access alternative media, is like it's just been decimated, and yet the obviously the mainstream media is going to keep telling you that they're winning, and and mm. you know this is the bear they're going up against. Who I would imagine, whether they might be a bit shambolic or what, they've kind of got infinite resources. Whereas Ukraine is a tiny country and maybe they're getting the weapons piled in there by by the USA, by UK, et cetera, et cetera. But where where's the where's the where are the where are the, the soldiers coming from? Because there's only so many people in a country that can fight or want to yeah. fight or know how to fight. They must have been taken out by now, have have they not? I don't I spoke with guys that um Obviously, Mariupol, I, I can talk about that, but rest of it, I don't really know the situation regarding that at the moment because I've only been home like three, four weeks. So it's like uh, I, I'm still catching up with stuff. But the the standard of guards, the, the, the obviously anybody up to 60 years old has been called up into the military in Ukraine now, uh, including women are serving as well. Uh, I don't know the age range of that, but women are considered in, in Ukraine to, to be able to serve. So... You know, in what capacity is down to the leadership of uh, of Ukraine? Um, but yeah, certainly the guys we got were were motivated, and uh, it was explained to me we've got nothing else. This is our country, you know, very patriotic, and this is why they're fighting so well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they might be undermanned. Yeah, they uh, training is not great in Ukraine, but th- their commitment to fighting is is, is because. They don't want to be a part of Russia, and and this is their country. And every person I met felt like that. Um, you know, we're leaving families back and fighting, even if they were undertrained. I don't think you've got the same mental attitudes with the Russians at all. Uh, I think the Russians are more now in a war that they uh, don't particularly want the Russian people. Um, 
and very similar to, you know, Ukraine doesn't want this war, uh, essentially, but they're fighting for their existence. Um, and that, for me, is is the turning point and why they're doing so well now is that mental uh, aspect to the war, uh, that they're committed, they've got nothing else. And and uh, if they give up, that's it. It's, it's all going to be Russia. So I think this is what's winning the war for Ukraine, despite the weapons coming in. It's the, it's the grit and uh, the determination for people to defend their their, their sovereignty and their, their way of life, their country. Is it not, and I'm sorry if I'm going over old ground, Sean, I'm just trying to understand for myself, w- would they not just be better going, well, look, this third of the country wants to be Russian, they've got Russian passports, they speak Russian, they, they live Russian, their culture's Russian. For the sake of like not having the whole country destroyed by further warfare, is it? Is it? I'm just asking this. I'm. I'm not suggesting it'll, it'll it. It'll carry on. It won't stop. You can mm. arrange a ceasefire now. We've done this with the Minsk. We've done this with Crimea. It won't stop. Uh, but they they say country. that Zelensky broke the Minsk, the Minsk agreement. Yeah, not- yeah. It, it's it's. Uh, we were under very controlled, tight laws about opening fire. Uh, in in, uh, I can speak from ground level. Um, mm. if we wanted to. Uh, return fire from the separatists we had to go through layers uh our commander he had to go through his commander layers and layers of, of mm. yeah you can fire uh onto to uh separatist positions before the war uh very much uh in the two weeks before the war uh on february 24th uh the their artillery just picked up and still then we were still uh you know restricted about what we could return fire on don't upset them don't push push the agenda and that was just my unit uh i could speak on you know i don't know what's happened further down the line don't know what happened with other units but we were very controlled about whether we could return fire and we got opened up on all the time uh and still had to just bite the bullet and hold and not fire return fire back until we we got the order we could um so uh, for my experience in, in two two tours even a year before we were you know we were very controlled in, in our responses to any um separatist uh, attacks or, or provocation um and uh, i think you'll find a lot of guys that worked with the marines will tell you the same thing um so i, I don't see that uh i see what's happened now um you know he, he was saying yeah he entertained Macron, I believe, uh, in the last ditch attempt to save the Minsk Agreement, saying, you know, he was committed to it and blah, blah, blah. But he'd already made a decision to invade, you know, and he's just going to keep coming. We do a peace deal now. He's just going to keep coming. He'll get reorg, resettle his troops, and in two or three years, go at it again. Take bit by bit, bit by bit, bit by bit. And, uh, you know, and uh, you can't trust this man. The only way a peace deal is ever going to be come around as if Putin's uh, uh, relinquishes his power, which I don't think he will. I think he's got himself into such a state he doesn't know how to uh, get out of it now without losing face. And Russian premiers don't tend to like losing face, you know? So they'll go on till the end. Yeah, it is a bit, it's always a a bit of a red flag when someone wants to be in power for so long. Yeah. I know know that he swapped roles so he could stay in power. (laughs) He he did a bit of a fiddle there, didn't he? But yeah. You know, it, it does. Um, you do think uh, dictatorship, basically. Um, what, Sean? Can I just get your thoughts, right? Because things are kicking off now in Georgia mm. and Chechnya. 
Mm. I believe if I've got this right, it's Ikaria or Ikaria in, in Chechnya have now just suddenly kicked up and said that they're, uh, they want independence and they're going to fight for Ukraine. You've got Abkhazia in Georgia and South Ossetia, which are also, uh, let's just use the expression, kicking up. Um, do you, can you shed any any light on that, or, is, or, or no, do we all really. we just need <laughs> we need to do some no. more research, don't we? I do. I do need to do some more research. I I, I have come across. Uh, look, as I, as I said before, this this whole war, um, we had one perspective uh, of Russia. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, and what I can see is that before the war, Europe was very divided, uh, you know, with Brexit and uh, a lot of the states were very divided. What this war done is brought Europe very closer together with a common goal. Uh, whatever Putin's foreign policy is, it's backfired. Uh, it's made, now been his army that we thought was very powerful, very technical, very able, has been left wanting. Um, and it's made his army and military look very weak. And obviously, with the sanctions financially, Russia is 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 it looks very weak as well. Um, so, so you know, I can't understand the value of this going into Ukraine and and still persisting with this this with you know this war in Ukraine. Uh, everything that the foreign policy that that Russia has has built this war on, and the narrative has changed month by month. Um, and I can't think this has only just been a negative exercise for, for Russia. This whole thing, uh, if that's the, the right way to phrase it, um, it, it's the worst thing they could have ever done. And they've got themselves into now a very long war um, with with no no end at the moment, uh, which is no good to anybody. Mm. Um, you know, I was going as far as saying on interviews recently, you know, I was thankful that somebody, in you, you know, the DPR in Russia said, you know, the, the contract soldiers, we can exchange it. Uh, you know, again, I'll go back to it. I don't hate Russians. Uh, just the foreign policy is bizarre. Uh, and you only have to understand and live out there for, for a long t- time to realise. I think there's a lot of internal problems within Russia that will materialise over the next six months. Um, and Putin will be under a lot of stress and a lot of, um, uh, a lot of pressure now uh, What with his appointment and his absolute bad handling of this whole thing uh i think we we could see some changes maybe next year i hope so it's a funny old situation because if you think nato was that was what kicked up a, for the cold war wasn't it you know these mm. this alliance this this um, western alliance against russia basically i don't know russia maybe stroke china and yet now we're not we haven't faced that although the media are trying to build it up as clearly going to try to build it up as that it's mm. another cold war but then you've got like i say sweden and finland joining nato you've got ukraine there right on the border of russia who's who who wants to join that it's like that's not good behavior either sean is it you know come on let's be honest that's not good behavior against a a sovereign might like 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 russia I mean, all this stuff doesn't get a mention in uh, in in Western media. Not not the implications of it, you know. It's a bit like you know, if you're in um, 
if you're in England and suddenly the Isle of Wight has now joined the force that's basically against or designed to be against you, you know, with all the military configurations there and uh, strategies and training exercises and da da da, and you're supposed to sit there and go, yeah, that's fine, Isle of Wight. Oh, you know, oh, look, Guernsey's just gone now. That's okay. Oh, look, <laughs> my geography's a bit shit, but whatever. You know, all the islands just joined. Oh, that's fine. Now we'll just sit here and let's put that um, to one side because, like I say, we've got a fine piece, folks. We've got a fine piece. Mm. Can't keep doing this to our children. It is silly. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to call out these psychos in control. But what I I wanted to ask you was um, were you familiar with Wally, this Canadian sniper? Did you? You didn't... I've heard of this name, yeah, but I don't, I don't know. No, I, I, I just wondered if you yeah, had any yeah, yeah. any dits to spin about Wally. Nothing. I, I, I spent a lot of time away from uh, West. I mean, there, was, you, there was you only... weren't you weren't in the Foreign Legion at no, all. No, I, you, I, you I were was actually in the, a regular Ukrainian soldier. unit. Yeah, mm. uh, I'd spent uh, five years working with Ukrainians, not Westerners, um, mm. and I wasn't in a legion or anything like that. I was actually ingrained into Ukraine, so you know I could speak language. I could, uh, you know, I'm married to Ukraine. I lived there for a long time, so mm. I wasn't actually. And all this sort of formed after I was captured, and and uh, so I, I'm not even familiar with uh, sort of uh, what's what's happened. And a lot of the people that are, are over there now, I don't really know. So, Sean, my last question, and I, this is. Well, not just personal interest, but I think it should be of interest to all of us. Is what's the thing with the tying people to lampposts? What? I don't understand. I, I'm not, I don't know what you're all about, to be honest. Okay, if you Google like punishment in Ukraine, yeah, you're going to get hundreds, if not more, pictures of people strapped to lampposts with the like Ukrainians dun- or. Uh, no, it's this is nothing to do with a war. This is just like if you commit a crime oh, in no Ukraine. I don't know. Maybe you like. I certainly have never seen it in five years. Yeah. Well, everyone's going to be doing an internet search yeah. now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they. It's people taped to lampposts in a semi-state of clothing. Some of them have been stripped from the waist down, um, and it it just seems a little bit kind of rough justice for what we're used to here you know where we let yeah. we kind of try and let the police deal with everything and go through the courts and this kind of thing um i just wondered if you had any take on it no but... i had no idea but i certainly have a look afterwards uh but yeah i have no idea about that really yes. you're talking to someone who's just had rough justice in donetsk and russia so it's like <laughs> yeah 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 I, I have no idea I only, I, 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 I only mention it because I know people in the UK that have opened their houses up to Ukrainian, uh, we're going to call them refugees, right? That's that, yeah. that would be the, you know, and I, I just, I just think, I wonder if uh, English, British people are a bit, bit naive about, because I think it's come back to. To I me, think I it, think it's amazing what, mm-hmm. what Britain have done with the, the refugees, to be honest, having, uh, you know, for example, uh, my commander's child's now at school here to to get them away from the country in the war. I think it's mm. that's really great what they've done. Uh, and he said, "Oh, my my daughter's near you." And I was like, "Really?" You know. And uh, he said, "Yeah, we've got her there for safety. She's now in school in in, in UK." I think it's amazing yeah. that, that they've done that and they're 
taking children and the, to the extent of um you know families and saving families i think it's amazing and, mm. you know certainly really would promote that uh as, as really really good thing england's done really not a bad thing yes we'll uh <laughs> we'll chat about england's immigration policy another day sure yeah, that's, what, that's what, way beyond my pay yeah, grade what 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 does the future hold for you mate what are you looking forward to stay over here yeah, for a bit. Uh, obviously, my wife's there. She works for an NGO. She's working with refugees over there. So we, we, we I have to go back at some point, um, but not immediately. I'm just resting. I've got uh, some problems with my back and my hips from my trauma from from there. So I can't really do anything until that's that's healed. Uh, I'm still through that healing process. So you know, it's still a little sore and a little. But my back's uh, got some problems at the moment, which I've never had before. And like I said, I touched on my eyes. Uh, just getting my glasses and stuff sorted now and I have to sort of look at that. But really, I, I just want to promote Ukraine where I can and, and use this platform like with yourself to, to talk about what people, you know, what you want to know and what you want to hear about from mm -hmm. the ground level. Because uh, I know for myself, that's the best source of information, not the media uh, a lot of the time. So you really do. And there's a lot of these wars attract a lot of mixture of people. Um, you know, people that want to glorify themselves, stick them on YouTube, see it as an opportunity to get money. Uh, you get your believers. I always say there's three types of people that you really get over there, believers, the killers and the runaways, really. Uh, a lot of the time, if you're a foreigner and want to go fight over there, um, you know, so so I put that, you know, we've put the time in the guys that got captured. We were working out there and uh, but I, I, I still want to continue and help rebuild it when the when the peace comes, hopefully. Uh, that's what I want to do. Um, so, but I, if, if that is, people ask me if, if, if you go back and do it all again, I said, yeah, absolutely. Knowing I'm alive at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, of course I would. <laughs> uh, but somebody else said to me, you're religious. I said, yeah, for the last six months and every day. <laughs> so I'm glad to be back home, to be honest, and see my family and stuff. So really appreciative of that. Sean, you've been an absolute legend coming on the show. Thank you so much. No problem. Yeah. You know, I, I, I hope, um, you know, I'm always say to people, like, put all this shit behind you now, you know. Don't, yeah, don't, yeah. don't. Otherwise, if we start thinking too much on trauma shit, we start let setting patterns in. Our, it, it's fucking forget yeah, about yeah, it now. Yeah. Tomorrow's a great day. The sun is shining, and and um, beautiful. Um, so much love to you, Sean, and your family. And please, yeah, thank you. Yeah. No, please go steady. Look after yourself. There's going to be a lot of hawks out there, no doubt. Want to get their. Uh, the claws yeah, into you, yeah, yeah. but um, mate, you're always welcome back on the show at any time. If there's anything you Cheers. want to come, come, come and say. In fact, I hope uh, we'll try and do a follow up interview in the in the next few months. Yeah, um, mate, stay on the line so I can thank you properly. But to everybody at home, yeah. massive love to you all as well. I hope you, um, uh, you know, appreciate Sean coming on and showing us a, a side of this conflict that we we we're not going to get to see because we haven't. Most of us haven't been there. Um, if you could like and subscribe, friends, really, really appreciate it. Click the notification bell and uh, we'll see you in paradise. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris Thrall. Thank you.